So great to see you, Eastside. Always thrilled to get to be with you. If we don't know one another, my name is Ashley Matthews. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity, specifically the pastor of education over on the west side. Thrilled to get to be here with you. And if you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Daniel today for the next several weeks, actually. Bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, Every now and again, we here at Trinity jump off of uh, the lectionary, which is our uh, regular MO. We preach from a Sunday lectionary that was given to us um, by way of the Church of England, centuries old, and we in churches all over the world uh, follow this Bible preaching and reading plan. And yet occasionally we, um, we take the liberty to jump off of the lectionary so that we can spend some extended time in parts of the Bible that we might not otherwise get a chance to study and be in together. And so that's what we've done uh, now for this season before Advent. So we'll be here for the next few weeks and we're going to read the whole chapter. So comfortable. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. And so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord, the king, of my Lord, the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men on your, of your age, you would endanger my head with a king. And then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the other young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withhold their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore... They were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Lord, is a gift to be in your house, um, is a gift to get to worship you, Lord. Um, my hands of blessing, uh, Lord, on those who are gathered here, those who've led us in worship thus far. God, thank you for the gift of your spirit with us. And now, Lord, as we put um, your word in front of us, the life of Daniel in front of us, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to bring them together. Use, Lord, uh, Daniel's life in order to show us things about our own lives, who we are and where we are. Or maybe more importantly, who you are and where you are. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do, which is to peel back our hearts in a way that would have us see Jesus. We, Lord, in this room, we invite you to come, to speak, to be here with us. Anoint this time, Lord, of the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to call our study of Daniel uh, the faith of the church. We've been, um, for the last uh, several months, actually, since Pentecost here at Trinity, we've been going through this study on the church and through um, out different weeks, we've designated different chunks of time um, to study different parts of the life of the church. And so for the next few weeks, as we move towards Advent, we're going to call this study the faith of the church, meaning... Uh, we're going to be paying attention to what it means to be people who have faith and keep faith in unlikely places, uh, in places actually that are uh, meant to defy faith, in places where faith should not thrive, or maybe some would say even could not thrive. What does it mean to be a person who, who follows Jesus, um, like Daniel was following Jesus in Babylon? Because Babylon was, of course, such a place, a place where faith really could not should not have been able to thrive. And yet, that's what we see happen precisely in the life of Daniel. So how and what does it mean for us? Uh, Daniel is, of course, set in the time of the exile. Uh, Daniel and a number of other people, thousands actually, um, were kidnapped, taken into, into Babylon to be exiles there after uh, the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell, um, literally and historically, to Babylon, the empire of Babylon in about the sixth century. And with the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole nation of Israel, thousands of people were taken into captivity um, to live out their life there. And what you see happen in the Bible is that Babylon becomes um, a kind of symbol. It takes on a symbolic significance. It really becomes this sort of place name for anywhere in the world that faith really shouldn't and can't thrive. So it's an empire or a way of life, a way of doing things that is in every way adverse and opposed to the ways of God or the kingdom of God. So like you got Babylon over here, you got the kingdom of heaven over here, and they are sort of like polar opposites, diametrically opposed to one another. And so there's that story about Babylon. But then there's also sort of interestingly this other narrative surrounding Babylon, which is that what we also see is that Babylon takes on um, a kind of place name for a place of potential, God's ability to show up in unlikely places and do unlikely things. So um, you have, for example, the prophet Jeremiah who comes out to say, rather surprisingly, after he's announced that Babylon is coming, he says to those who are going into exile, it's okay, it's all right. Once you get there, just build houses, plant gardens, pray for the welfare of your city, which is really interesting. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying is don't lose heart, don't lose hope, just like accept that you're in Babylon and see what God does. 
So this tension that exists between Babylon is like the worst of all possible places where a person could end up and is surely where your faith goes to die. And Babylon is this place of like new possibility and potential where God can do new things you didn't expect. Both of those things exist not only within the Bible, but even within the story of Daniel. This struggle sort of lives out in Daniel's own heart. Um, He didn't want to go to Babylon. It was really hard to be there. And yet what we see happen in Daniel's life is that his faith adapts. It's like it evolves. It becomes a new kind of thing that had he not ever wound up in Babylon, that faith could not have happened. It gives rise to something new. And in that way, I think there is a kind of invitation for us, um, not just for like for you individually, but maybe even for us as a church to say that like maybe in what ways, in a place where it would seem as if in all respects, (laughs) the world is bent against our faith, that faith kind of goes against the grain of life in maybe every respect, or it's so hard where you are personally to see God or imagine that God could be. What if in a place exactly like that, God could give rise to something, to a new kind of faith in you, a new way of experiencing God, a new way of living out your life as a person trying to follow Jesus? What if that could be true for us culturally and even for you personally? That, I think, is the sort of invitation of the life of Daniel. And so I should say, given you know, that statement, here's what we're not doing for the next few weeks. For the next few weeks, we are not preaching a sermon series on the culture wars and how everything living now in the world today is just like being in Babylon and woe is me. Um, we're not preaching on the culture wars because we are not at war with our culture. Now I'll say it again. We are not at war with our culture That war between good and evil, it has been fought and it has been won. Jesus is king. Um, Amen. That is in fact true. Um, Kanye ain't wrong. You know, it's true. Jesus is king. And he has been and he will be. And because that is true, I therefore get to figure out what it looks like for me to pursue God in the place where I am and watch him do new things. There's an invitation for us as a church with a capital C and for you personally. Um, God is not afraid of deconstruction. God is not afraid of Sam Harris. God is not afraid of politics or pop culture. Jesus is king. And if that is not true in here, then that's the question. Because what was true for Daniel is that in the place where it would appear that God had utterly forsaken them and disappeared. Because God reigned here, Daniel began to see the ways in which God was reigning in the world around him. But it took a new kind of insight, a new perception, a new faith that I believe you have access to and I have access to. So we're gonna keep that sort of question in front of us and then um, look at the story. So here's what happens, Daniel, Um, And his friends are taken into exile. Specifically, they are placed within the palace courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that is because they are pretty. Um, They were um, very good looking, and they were very smart, and they um, were representatives of the best and highest families in the kingdom of Israel. And so as was common practice in the ancient world, if you dominate or conquer a kingdom, you take everybody into exile, but the really special ones, you know, you claim for yourself and you make them your own. And so Daniel and his friends are prescribed this rather intense regimen of becoming Babylonian. 
And so they're given new names almost immediately. They're taught the literature, the language. All of these things are um, a process, a long process of enculturation, of sort of making them Babylonian. And what's really interesting to me about that, to the, to the point, I will say, um, maybe to Nebuchadnezzar's success, the names of Daniel's friends that we do know, we don't know their Jewish names. What names do we know? We know their Babylonian names, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But before they had Babylonian names, they had Jewish names. And they undergo this, this process of enculturation. And interestingly enough, they don't resist it, actually. They submit to it willingly, up to a point, that is. So Daniel and his friends, they learn the language, they wear the clothes, they read the books. But when it comes to eating the food, that's where Daniel draws the line. And he refuses to eat the food. He says, in effect, I'll wear your clothes, I'll speak your language, you can call me whatever you want to call me, but I am not eating that. I won't do it. And he commits to pray. He says, he, like the text tells us, that he resolves within his heart not to defile himself. And what's really interesting about this is that he makes this commitment and then he goes to the Babylonian fish, official who was in charge of his sort of enculturation process and he says, I'm not going to eat that. Give me vegetables and water. And if after 10 days of eating only vegetables and only water, I start to languish or falter, um, then I'll start eating the royal rations. And here's why. The royal rations were, of course, rich in fat and oil. The reason that they were prescribing them this food, it was not to defile them, it was um, to, to beef them up. Because they were also um, exercising a lot and they wanted them to have big muscles, you know? Um, and to be very shiny with the oil and fats in their food. They wanted them to be handsome and good looking. And so Daniel says, if at the end of this 10 days, if I start to look bad or am I, am I weak, then you can feed me whatever you want to feed me. And so he commits to 10 days. And at the end of those 10 days, not only is he not weaker and more frail than everyone else, but he's what? He's stronger and fatter and better looking and smarter than everybody else. And on top of that, not only does his physical strength or appearance sort of increase, um, also apparently sort of inwardly and spiritually, Daniel grows. His faith sort of evolves. He takes on new spiritual gifts that he didn't know that he had and that he didn't have before, like being able to interpret dreams and have visions. Um, there's a new kind of, of wisdom about Daniel. And so what are we to make of all of this? Um, I think the moral of this story, in short, is obvious. Eat your vegetables. There it is. We're now going to spend the next 15 minutes talking about the benefits of vegetables and the Daniel fast. Prepare yourself. No, I do not think that is the point of the story, although vegetables are great. I sadly do not think that this is a text that is meant to praise the glories of vegetarianism. Um, even though there are many, I'll grant. I was a vegetarian for 11 years until I just got pregnant and then I became a pagan and I've never looked back. <laughs> um, so whatever reasons we may have for being vegetarian, alas, we can't get there through Daniel because the whole point of eating the vegetables, in fact, is that they should not have made him stronger and fitter and better. He actually should have looked worse. That's why he chooses to eat the vegetables, because um, the vegetables are not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. In spite of what he was eating, Daniel goes on to grow in his faith and in his body. That's the moral of the story. God is at work in Daniel in a new way. 
How? And what does that look like? Well, I have um, been so thankful for the opportunity to sit with this text. And I just want to tell you, I feel particularly excited about the season of life that we are in, um, in this church at Trinity, maybe even specifically for you all here on the east side. I believe that God is at work in our life here together. I believe that there is an invitation from the Lord for some of us for our faith to grow and change and adapt. I believe that is true. And that there is an invitation, maybe even through Daniel's life and story that we're meant to lean into in hope and expectation that that would be true, could be true for us. So there are two things to that end that I want to point out that stood out to me as I was reading, even in this first chapter. And the the first um, is this. God never says a word or makes an appearance in Daniel's story. Um, But he is governing Daniel's life and this story from beginning to end. His presence is evident throughout it, even though he never says a word and he never makes a visible appearance. And we're told that specifically in this first chapter because sort of God gets peppered in there throughout. He makes an appearance. We're told that, for example, God was with Jehoiakim when he fell to Nebuchadnezzar. We're told that God was with Daniel to give him the courage that he needed in order to speak back and up to his Babylonian official. We're told that God was with Daniel through his fast in ways that not only strengthened him physically, but grew his faith. So God is with Daniel um, throughout. And here's what that means and uh, says to me. The way God becomes visible in places like Babylon, in places in which it is in all respects harder maybe to see God, is through the faith of people in Babylon who are willing to live as if they were still in the safety of Jerusalem. So the way that God makes himself known in Daniel is through the faithful steps of his people in Babylon who are living as if they are still in the safety of Jerusalem. So God isn't going before them making declarations of his presence in the book of Daniel. That's not how he shows up. God shows up when his people take a step of faith. And in that step of faith, then God meets them and carries them through it. So here's what that says to me. That in places in my own life, which it is harder maybe for me to hear God or see God or know that he is with me, perhaps such a place, my own kind of Babylon, requires me to take steps of faithfulness, trusting that God will then show up and meet me as I go, which is precisely what happens to Daniel. You'll notice in the story, he sort of makes this resolution to himself. All right, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat the food. I can't. I can do all the other things, but there's a line for me, and that's the line, and I just, I can't, I can't cross it, so I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to tell him that I can't eat the food. And so that's precisely what he does. He has to go and say no to the Babylonian official. I'm not going to eat that. Do you know what happens to you in the ancient world if you look at Babylon and say, no, I'm not going to eat that? They go, okay, cool. Right off. Your head comes right off of your body. It takes no time at all, and it is not like a painful decision for them to make. There are other pretty Jews to take your place. Not hard to find. Other kingdoms for us to conquer. 
But yet what we see happen in the story is that Daniel makes the resolution, he takes a risk, and in so doing, God then meets him firstly through the favor of a Babylonian official. So here's what I want to say about that. Every time we have these kind of faith sermons where it's like, it's time for you wherever you are to take a risk, step out in faith, do the thing that God would have you to do. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you now have permission to be silly and to do reckless or foolish things because you don't. That's not faith. Having ambition and having faith are not the same thing. And you and the Lord are the only ones maybe in your life. I suspect there are other people, but primarily you and the Lord are the ones who know the difference for you. Having ambition and having faith are not the same thing. So what Daniel does is his ambition, bravado, or is it faith? He takes a step, and then he waits for God to provide and open a door. And I have noticed now, I've been with the Lord long enough, that that's a pretty faithful way to move forward. Take a risk, watch for God. He shows up. Take another risk, watch for God. Take another risk. And before you know it, those risks don't feel as risky anymore. And you've learned to hear from God like as you go. You get better and better at discerning when to step out and when to stay put. I've had um, sort of the privilege of watching over the last number of months a person that I know, a man um, who works a really, you know, fairly influential job, making pretty good money, try to discern whether or not maybe he should quit his job so that he could s simplify his family's life and maybe even stay home with his kids, be a good dad. And um, watching people like that in my life try to wrestle with those kind of decisions as faithful Christians, living in a world in which you are at every turn encouraged to hurry and build and make much of you and make more money, particularly for men, in a culture that would make us and have us to be addicted to success and achievement and hurry, to see a Christian say, you know what? I'll wear your clothes. I'll speak your language. But I'm not going to do that is a really powerful thing to watch. And the question for us church is, do we know where those lines are? I'm not saying they're easy to navigate. They're not, that's the whole point. You can't do it without the wisdom and power of God. And so if we're trying to navigate those lines without the role of the Holy Spirit in our life and a clear vision of Jesus, we won't do it well. And some of us aren't doing it well. A lot of us aren't doing it well. There are lines. And when and how we enact our resistance and say, no, I won't eat that, I think is an opportunity for us to grow in our experience of God and watch God move. It also preaches something pretty powerful to the culture around us. The Babylonians loved Daniel. They didn't hate him or fear him. They loved him. Now, there were times when he was hated and he was feared. You're not after the love, and it's okay if they fear you. You just got to, like, walk with the Lord, you know? Try to mind the lines. So, here's the question. Are there parts of the royal diet that you are being asked to resist and abstain from 
Are there aspects of the royal cultural diet that you are being asked to resist and abstain from? And are you willing to say no? And not just willing, do you have the faith of God within you that you will need in order to say no? That's where I feel an invitation from the Lord. When it comes time to say no, am I going to have the strength of spirit I need to do it? So that's the first thing. Maybe a really important question. And second um, is this. I, um, the thing that gets me about this story, I think that impresses me maybe the most about Daniel's life, is, as I've said, going into Babylon for a young kid, a young Jew, who grew up um, waiting for the exile to happen, and then it finally does. For that not to be the end of his faith, but rather to be a turning point in which he grows and thrives and his faith takes on new life is incredible to me. It's powerful. And it makes me wonder if the same would be true of me, if the same has been true of me. Um, Here's why I think that happens for, for Daniel. It's because life in Babylon required him to ask questions that life in Jerusalem never did and to pray prayers that he never had to pray before. Life in Babylon requires you to ask questions and pray prayers that you never had to pray when you lived in Jerusalem, in the safety of Jerusalem, in a place where God and your faith was sort of like reinforced at every turn. This was college for me. Do you remember college? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Jews stepped into Babylon, they were asking things like, what does it mean to have faith without Jerusalem? Who is God? How do I worship here? And when you go to college as a Christian growing up in a small and rather homogenous place, both intellectually and in all other ways, um, that's how you feel. You get there and you think, "Uh uh-oh. And you have... You have a couple of choices. I think three, but two are presented to you. You can either sort of double down on the way you've always known God and become a fundamentalist of sorts. The world is 6,000 years old. It is. It is. You can do that. Or you can become a practical atheist and feel very sexy in your pagan sophistication. I think, however... There is, I have learned, a third way that would be neither of those extremes. But what if you got into that place and you let yourself ask new questions and engage different kinds of people and you watched, as a result, your faith grow? Take on new life. What if you grew spiritually? Because what happened to Daniel is not only did Babylon not squash his faith, it actually turned him into a prophet And a prophet is someone who can hear and see God when no one else can, or at least the dominant culture around you can't, and encourages you away from it. That's the invitation. When I look at Daniel's life, what if my cultural moment in a post-Christian image and work-obsessed culture, what if that world not only not kill my faith, what if it turned me into a prophet in Jesus' name? And what if we all started to hope that something like that could happen for us, whatever it might mean for you to be prophetic where you are? And what if it's not just your culture, whatever is happening to you in your life, 
that makes God very hard to see and God very hard to hear. I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate the point, but parenthood has been a kind of Babylon, Babylon-like place for me. I love my kids. Don't tell them. But it's hard to navigate, to figure out what does it look like for me to practice worship, live as a Christian in this place because it's not like where I've been before. And I'm either just going to stop because it's hard or I'm going to lean in and say, Lord, where are you? Help me see you and watch my faith grow in new ways, ways that are different, new practices, new rhythms, new experiences with God. I believe there is that kind of an invitation for you. The most powerful moment of this whole story for me is imagining that kid, Daniel, getting on his hands and knees in Babylon and saying, against all odds, I believe, God, you are here. I can't see you. I can't hear you. But I believe that you are here. Help me see. Help me hear. Help me grow. That's the only way you ever know God is waymaker. You, you don't need God to be a waymaker in Jerusalem. You're in Jerusalem. He's everywhere. You're home. You, got, you need God to be a waymaker when you are in Babylon or wherever you are. You need to know God and can, I guess, is what I'm saying. You can know God as waymaker in that place. You can know God as a miracle worker and a promise keeper and a light in the darkness. You can there. That is the invitation for you. Is that he's God there too. It's just different. Hard to see. And will require therefore something other of you. So what if we like with open hands went into this cultural moment and this particular private and personal moment. Saying, Lord we believe you're here. Show us what faith looks like here. What it means to be faithful. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand together if we can. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.